Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. My name is Dr. Dennis Moles, and I'm a pastor and professor from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the older brother of the world-famous Chris Moles. I'm standing in for Chris today, who's battling some voice issues, but should be back with us very soon. On today's episode, we're going to be sharing part one of a master class titled A Theology of Abuse from PeaceWorks University. If you find this episode helpful, you can find more content and sign up for more master classes at chrismoles.org. This episode features our friend, Dr. Jeremy Pierre, Professor of Biblical Counseling at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, along with Chris. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy this episode featuring part one of Chris and Dr. Pierre's conversation focusing on a theology of abuse. Hey, welcome back to the Masterclass, everybody. Just thrilled that you could be with us and take the time to Uh, view this lesson for the month. I'm really excited to introduce you to a friend of mine. This is Jeremy Pierre. He's a professor at Southern Seminary, and uh, he and I did some work together. Some of you will probably recognize him as Travis. Please put that out of your mind uh, if you have watched the um, observation videos. Uh, We're going to be doing some watch parties, too, uh, coming up, so be looking for that. Anyway, um, I'm just thrilled to have Jeremy on the masterclass today. We're actually doing something that we've never done before. He's teaching this live in a a seminary class. So you guys get to experience a little bit of what it's like to be in one of his classes. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Jeremy. Jeremy, if you would just, anything else you want to add and introduce the topic and we'll just roll into it. That's great. That's great. Yeah, Chris, thank you for having me. Um, just to, to everybody watching this, I just want to say how thankful I am for Chris's ministry and his friendship. Um, he is, he's bringing light to an area that is not fun to bring light to, but that we need to be good at. We need to be shrewd as serpents and discerning uh, some of the dynamics at play uh, in, in situations that good, well-meaning Christians can follow instincts that aren't thorough enough, that just the nice guy instincts are not enough uh, to really help in situations where there, there's domestic abuse going on. So I'm just really thankful for you, Chris, and for, you know, you kind of bearing a lot of the, the weight of this. So I'm grateful. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate that. So I want to talk actually about the, the dynamics of abuse, but, but, where where I sort of approach it is on the theological side of things. I have experience in on the counseling side of things, but I I rely on the co-author of this book. His name's Greg Wilson, and we're we're finishing up a book called When Home Hurts: How to uh, Respond Well to Domestic Abuse Situations in Your Church. Um, and I rely on him for banking thousands and thousands of hours with, with abuse victims, uh, perpetrators of abuse. And so I'm so thankful for the insights that he brings. What, what I'm trying to talk about today is how do we think biblically about, uh, about domestic abuse? 
um, because a lot of people have a sincere desire to apply scripture well, but even though they have that sincere desire, they don't always do it well because they don't, they don't think carefully about how they're going about the task. Um, so for instance, you, you, you can't open the Bible and just simply look up domestic abuse. I, I hope that's somewhat obvious. Okay. But, but what people then might do is they might just try to swap that out for the closest key word they can think of and think that's now going to describe domestic abuse. So they can maybe look up things like violence or oppression or harm or even something as sort of global or general as sin. And they think that that sort of will then describe for them all they need to know about domestic abuse or the dynamics of abuse, because that's what it means to use the Bible in their minds. But, but that's actually a very limited way of using the Bible. Keywords are really important in the sense that we have to understand what authors meant when they used and attended to certain words, guys. Okay? So, so that's important. It's an important part, it's not the whole, okay? So we can't just rely on keywords to tell us everything we need to know about domestic abuse dynamics, though keywords are important in the, in the process. So that's one way I think we can go wrong. I think another way we can often go wrong uh, in talking and looking to scripture to tell us about abuse is we try to look for stories in scripture that sort of have as many touch points as possible with the situation we're, we're handling with in our church, right? So you look for violence in a domestic situation. And, you know, the closest, the, the closest you come up with are, are situations like uh, David's son, Amnon, and, and his daughter, Tamar, where Amnon rapes Tamar through deception, and then further shames her by putting her out and, and rejecting her. And there's a lot of cultural things going on there too that's, that's difficult to understand. But the point is, people want to look to those stories and say, okay, see, now here's how we understand domestic abuse. And, and honestly, I do think we gain different insights into how human beings treat each other and how it's, it's been just wrecked it desecrates God's design for, for human relationships to be loving and to be building other people up and things. So we do gain insights, but the point of that story is not to describe for you domestic violence because there's a lot of factors at play for the woman who's coming to you in your church telling you about her husband that were not at play in that situation and vice versa. So I think that's really important, Jeremy, for, yeah. for our folks to grasp that these narratives are central to, I guess, our understanding, but not for our full comprehension of the problem. Right. There's plenty of evidence for domestic abuse. Cain and Abel, Joseph and his brothers, Tamar and Abner. I mean, we go on and on and on and on and on, but it doesn't help us in the long run pulling out the full construct, which... For those of us, those of you in PeaceWorks that are using stories as your primary uh, persuasive tool, continue to use stories. But listen closely yeah. as Jeremy pulls yeah. out the need for constructs that are going to help us because abuse is a construct. We need a theological construct to help us understand that biblically. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. thank you. 
So, so basically, how, how does scripture address things like domestic abuse? We could ask the exact same question of how does it address methamphetamines? How does it address uh, teenage cutting? How does it address lots of things or internet pornography? None of those things are mentioned in scripture because, because many of them didn't exist. Okay? And so it's not that scripture has nothing to say about those. It's just we have to be careful with how scripture talks about them. And so what I would say is we need to look to scripture not to describe the external situations that we're currently dealing with necessarily, okay, like methamphetamines or domestic abuse, but rather to offer us a perspective or a lens through which to view those things. Now, it's not just one perspective. Here's the beauty of scripture is it gives you with all these different theological themes and doctrine and insights and principles, it gives you a host of different views, a host of different angles from which to view that external situation. And so what we run into, if you see scripture that way, is not that it has so little to say about things like domestic abuse. It actually has so much to say, it's hard to even kind of narrow it down. So, so let, me give you, let me give you some examples of these different theological themes or doctrines that could act as these perspectives. And then I'll tell you the ones we're gonna go with, okay? But you could, you, could, you could assess it from a lot of different themes like, like transgression, okay? What does it mean to break the, God's intention for humanity or to transgress upon someone else, to kind of go into their property, what's rightfully theirs, and, and misuse it, okay? That's, that's one theme we could use. Another theme is the idea of shalom, okay? Shalom means peace is how we normally translate it, but it's not just the sense of peace, although that's part of it. It's this understanding of completion and rest, right? So one is at peace when one is completely what, what one was designed to be. And so that would be another angle we could use to think about abuse because abuse is the wrecking of shalom. It's, it's the incompletion. It's the deconstruction of somebody else. Um, I could go on. You could, you could go with law, justice, deliverance, atonement, mercy, holiness. You, you, there's all these themes that would give us a different dimension on understanding uh, what domestic abuse is. Okay? A lot of our folks will be familiar, Jeremy, because in PeaceWorks and in the process that I use with men, and I, I caught this as you were talking about this at BCC too, we contrast the gospel of peace with their current existence. And that's part of our process in Men of Peace is that good. constant contrasting of the gospel of peace with their current state of existence. Because a lot of yeah. guys, their theological construct that we work with, if they claim to be Christians, is headship and submission, mm -hmm. is patriarchy. Right. But we want that to fall into submission to the gospel of peace, which yeah. is going to run in contrast. So we we do that in our PeaceWorks folks, you'll be familiar with that process somewhat, but that is so helpful in a world where our pastors want terminology, definitions, practical yep. steps. What you're talking about, I think, is let's get the theological construct set so that we can properly contrast what's happening in front of us. That's right. And you know what? Pastors rightfully want to see that logic laid out from scripture, okay? And I'm glad for that. And I'm glad when a guy wants that. 
It's just that they need to see that you got to apply way more theological perspective than just simply what you conceive of as headship. Now, that's actually one of the things I'm going to mention, and it's because it's so easily misconstrued and misused. Okay, so I'm going to get to the bottom line. I'm going to give you at least my what a theological description of what domestic abuse is. Okay, I'm going to get there. But first, I'm just going to briefly introduce the doctrines I'm using to get there. Okay, so so the 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 five outstanding doctrines that we we that Greg Wilson and I just chose to utilize uh, were were the following. So the first is the image of God. Okay, so that just simply means that all people were created to reflect the personhood of God, which means they perceive the world and they act in the world as a person that's like his personhood okay so uh, you've heard me say this word personhood like in my definition a couple times there's a reason for that one's personhood that means the capacities to think to desire to choose is essential to that design and abuse is going to affect that okay so then the second doctrine is the doctrine of sin but not just sin generically, right? Sin is not just external action, though sin is expressed externally. Sin is also this warping of that image that we talked about. It's a warping of the ability to perceive and to see so that the way I think, the things I want out of other people, it, it's twisted and it's warped, okay? And, and then that has, it, that eventuates in destructive ways of interacting with them externally. So, so a robust doctrine of the image of God, a robust doctrine of sin, also a robust doctrine of love is the third one, love. By love, I don't mean merely sentimental feelings, though sentimental feelings are wonderful and they go with love. What I mean is God's design purpose for all human relationships. Basically, it boils down to this. The love that love is the fulfilling of God's law. It's the fulfilling of his will. It's the, it's the first and second great commandment. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and others as yourself. Here's what that means. That at cost to myself, I am acting in such a way to benefit and build up others. Okay. That's what love is at cost to self. I am benefiting others. Well, you can already kind of maybe even do the calculation in your mind how abuse is going to be the exact opposite of that. Exactly. Right. right. So we'll get there. So the fourth doctrine we just wanted to, to bring up as a perspective is marriage. Okay. Marriage. Because, again, not all domestic violence situations, you have a married couple. But it's, it's either a married couple or someone who's living together in a way that's imitating what marriage ought to be. Right. Um, and so, so that's why we think this is a, a legitimate doctrine to really keep at the forefront because marriage is God's arrangement for one man and one woman to live out an exclusive form of that love that we just talked about, a, a particularly powerful form of that love. The love bond between husband and wife is an exclusive and unique bond unlike any, anything else. So what that means is the potential for good is higher. You know where I'm going. But the potential for destruction is much higher, too. Or I was going to say lower, but no idea. 
Hey, real quick, Jeremy, in my, in the secular side of my work, like even in the kingdom of the world side, working in corrections for as long as I have, we have noticed that cohabitating couples are present. Like we have guys who are cohabitating. Uh, most of the time they're serial cohabitators. They, they yeah. run through women right. like, like they're commodities. It's very misogynistic. But on the other hand, a large portion of our clients are married and have been married multiple times in part because marriage is a very, is, it holds people captive in that regard. Right. And so marriage is a beneficial tool in some ways to an abuser. And this is from a worldly perspective. And so I am somewhat shocked at the numbers of men in our corrections groups who are married and have been married multiple times uh, as a means of control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. So then the final doctrine that we're going to mention is, is actually the church, okay? That, that might surprise you, okay? But, but we, we believe strongly, whether a guy goes to church or not, it's, it's really not what we're getting at. It's that God made the church as his spirit indwelled people of, of his word, people who sit under his word, who seek to be a community that honors what is true and good and right, and that thwarts what is false and bad and evil. And so... You know, I, I would just, you're going to see where we go with this, but you can't talk about domestic abuse as if it's just that couple themselves. They affect a community. And God's, God, the bride he pledged himself to is the church. That's the community where restoration takes place most comprehensively. And so we, we always encourage sort of a church word view of so those are, the, those are sort of the five doctrinal um, perspectives that, that then lead to how I would describe it in a nutshell. And Chris, I can provide this to you in written format, you know, if, if it's helpful for you. So, so here's, here's, here's our stab, me and, me and Greg Wilson's stab at describing abuse uh, theologically. Abuse occurs as a person uses his God-given capacities to diminish the God-given capacities of people under his influence in order to control them. Because God made people as embodied souls, these capacities are both physical and spiritual. Abuse is identified then from two directions. First, both the manipulative intent and the behavioral forcefulness of the one who's acting abusively. And second, from the diminishing effect that it has on the abused. Okay. So that's, we, we don't claim that that's all you can say about abuse. Chris has said far finer and, and, and wider things than that. But we're trying to just sort of say, what do those five doctrines kind of construed together help us understand? So let me unpack what I just said a little bit in, uh, I think it's going to end up being just a few simple points. Okay. So now I'm unpacking what I just said. So first, uh, where I want you to, to focus most on this description is that abuse, uh, that abuse limits the God-given capacities of someone else. It's using my personal God-given capacities to limit those in someone else. Another way you could say it is it's using my personhood to constrain and control the personhood of another 
in order to extract from them my desires to get what I want. Okay. So this, this is a particularly hardened form of sin. It warps the image of God, both in the abuser by, through his repeated action, and also it warps it in the one who's abused through, through the lies and the manipulations and the constraints and the diminishment that, that the abuse has. Okay. And so this, this often kind of surprises people, I think, that, that, uh, that aren't maybe familiar with abuse dynamics, is that abuse is as much a way of being as it is an act of doing. We always think of abuse merely as, well, did he hit her? Okay, well, what words did he say to her? And those are super important. You got to know that. Chris, you've been really helpful for me and even understanding better what types of questions to ask to get at those, because those are the means by which we then can go and understand how a person's seeing the world. But I'm, I'm, I'm just talking from the opposite direction for now to just point out, abuse is not just what a person does, it's the entire way he sees the world. It's the entire way he sees his relationship. He sees the people under his influence. Um, it, it's a warped perception. And it, it's a way of seeing the world in particular where, where he's entitled to his desires. He's entitled to get what he wants. And other people, it's, it's, just like, it's just like glasses. If you had like a tint to your glasses that you always have them on and you're always looking at other people through, you see them through the lens of your own warped desires and your own sense of entitlement to get those desires. And so then it just skews all of the interactions. Um, and particularly the interactions are then uh, are then characterized by forcefulness is the word that we've used, okay? So manipulation, okay? Think about the word manipulation for a second, okay? It's, it's to position other people, okay? It's to, it's to use manpower, right? To pull, to push, to place them and position them in such a way where you can get what you want from them. And so manipulation is, manipulation is another way of saying forcefulness, right? I'm forcing my will on someone else. I'm limiting and constraining the options by the consequences that they will endure if they don't go with where I'm wanting them to go. And so really, that's kind of the dividing line. I'm, I'm emphasizing this a lot because I do think that's the most helpful dividing line between sin that's abusive and sin that's not necessarily abusive when you're trying to discern it in like a pastoral situation in your church, okay? Uh, 